Morning, everyone. Welcome back, parents, filing in from the lobby. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Graham, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And um, welcome to those of you online as well. We're glad that you are with us. And if you are joining us for the first time, you're kind of hitting us uh, about a third of the way into a series that we've been talking about here called The Knowledge of the Holy, in which we're reading a book by A.W. Tozer uh, of, of that title, which goes through the attributes of God. Not that you can enumerate the attributes of God. He just does 23 of them. Um, and uh, in... in sort of understanding the attributes of God, we're getting to know God uh, as best that we can, to know the unknowable, as he's revealed himself to us. And, and I know uh, that the book itself um, and the series that we are in for myself and for some of us seems to be uh, taking place in the deeper end of the pool. And it can be hard at times sometimes to see how seemingly abstract attributes of God that have names like eternality and infinitude and immutability um, matter to us day to day. But as with each sermon in this series, and I hope as we continue in the weeks ahead, we see how the writers of the Bible have grounded every practical and helpful reality of our faith and practice as Christians on these attributes or these realities of God. In other words, there's nothing that's true about our faith. There's nothing that is true and helpful about our walk as disciples in relationship to God as our Father that is not rooted and founded on a fundamental reality of who he is. In other words, God has to be the way that he is or we would have no hope in our faith. God must exhibit these attributes or our faith and our walk and our hope is meaningless. So these are not just trivial things or academic things or theological things. They are foundational practically to why we believe what we believe and why we have the hope that we have. And they serve his glory and our joy and satisfaction. And so today we're talking about uh, eternality, infinitude, and immutability, and we're focusing mainly on immutability, which is the unchanging nature of God. And confession time, I actually preached almost this sermon about 17 months ago, before we were, the idea of this series was either, even a glimmer in my eye. Uh, but 17 months ago, I preached something like this message, and it so fits eternality, infinitude, and immutability, I really felt like there were several reasons that we needed to hear it again. Uh, not only because it cut my preparation time in half this week. <laughs> But let me tell you, this particular week, that was all arranged by God 17 months ago, because I needed half preparation time this week. Um, and so there was that goodness, but there's more goodness to come. So let's dive in today and understand the eternal, infinite, immutable goodness of God. I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we've uh, even already... Of course, already, as we've been gathered as your people, we've felt your Holy Spirit moving this morning. And I just pray that uh, as we continue in your word, that your Holy Spirit is faithful to open our eyes, um, to uncover our hearts, uh, to speak to us directly, um, that we recognize that we need more than uh, just emotional 
hope. We need more than just uh, good feelings. We need all of this to be rooted in something real. It has to be grounded in you. Something and someone who is infinite and eternal and unchanging. And so, Father, that's, that's what we're examining today. That's what we are considering today. We are just, just meditating on this amazing reality of who you are and how it expresses itself in your goodness to us in ways that we can't even comprehend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so all three of these attributes are emphasized in just two sentences of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, 17 to 18. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. In those two sentences, we see these attributes. God's goodness is complete. It's comprehensive. I'm inserting infinite in there because we will not come to the end of it. It is immutable and unchanging, and his goodness is eternal. And so first we see that God is comprehensively good. He's good in every way. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. He says there's nothing good and nothing perfect that is not from God. Every good thing, every perfect thing comes from God. John the Baptist explains to his followers in John 3.27, he says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. God is so comprehensively good in the sense that all good, every good, the total of anything good that we discover or receive in this life or the next is all coming from him. And the word that James uses for good here is agathos, and it means beneficial. And so God's gifts are not good like, say, ice cream is good. Because, of course, ice cream tastes good, and we're happy when we're eating ice cream, but ice cream isn't completely beneficial. Ice cream may not cause our health to flourish, but God's gifts are so good that every one of them is beneficial to us, ultimately. They are more, they're more than just for our happiness or joy. In fact, and here's where a mystery lies, in fact, some of God's gifts, like cough syrup or chemotherapy or even cancer, do not make us happy. But God's gifts are always for our flourishing and our ultimate satisfaction in Him. They are for our progress, our benefit. God is comprehensively good because His gifts are always for our ultimate joy in the end. James emphasizes this completeness or fullness of God's goodness by adding, and every perfect gift. The word for perfect here that James uses is teleos. It's a perfection that accomplishes completion, something that is brought to completion perfectly. It carries the idea that it is final, it is done, it hits the mark, it accomplishes its final objective. And so everything that God brings to you is accomplishing its final objective. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.13 when he's describing the gifts that Jesus gave to the church as he ascended to heaven. 
Paul says that Jesus gave those gifts, they were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, in order that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, teleos, perfection, manhood, mature manhood or mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the teleos, that God's gifts move us to completion in perfection. And so God's gifts are completely beneficial. They're always for our flourishing and maturing. They're never against it. And these godly gifts hit their mark exactly. They achieve their objective in us for our maturity. Now, these are the kinds of gifts we receive, James says, from the Father of lights. And we can pause here and we can contrast the gifts that we receive from the Father of lights compared to, say, the gifts that we might receive from our earthly fathers. Are they always beneficial? Are they always suitable? Are they always sufficient? Do they always perfect us? And Jesus says in Luke 11, he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, even you guys know to give good gifts to your children. So imagine being a child of God the Father, the Father of light. We, Jesus says, you guys are smart enough not to give your kids serpents and scorpions, but sometimes I wonder if we know much more than that. I mean, some of the gifts that we get from our fathers or even from our spouses or other loved ones make you wonder what they were thinking or who the gift was for. One Christmas, Wendy and Isaac got me a waffle maker. And I, from then on, have been the waffle supplier. (laughs) And then the next Christmas, they realized how brilliant they were, and they got me a rolling pin for making pies. Now, in retrospect, I'm not sure who that gift is for. Now, it did help me, though. I suppose, in retrospect, that those gifts helped me accomplish my maturing as a husband and a father who participates in all parts of giving to the family life. And so that was a thoughtful gift in that regard. And so now I'm thinking for her own maturing, I should get Wendy a snowblower this year. (laughs) So that she can enjoy the same growth and maturity that I've enjoyed from her kitchen utensils that she's gotten me. But unlike us, when God gives us gifts, he's never giving in a mercenary way. He never has a selfish motive to his gift. God can give so comprehensively and so perfectly in every possible way because as we learned last week, God needs nothing from us. He doesn't need me to make the waffles. He doesn't need anyone to blow out the driveway. As we saw last week, Paul said in Acts, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We serve God, but we don't serve God as though he needs us as though he needs anything from us. We serve a God who needs nothing and therefore can give to us perfectly without any other motive. So God is comprehensively good in the things that he gives. But as we focus today on this attribute, God is immutably good. This immutability of God is so important to every other attribute of who he is. And immutability means not changing. 
As we continue in verse 17, we see that these good gifts come to us, James says, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we can pause here and we can ask ourselves, just like we kind of did last week, why did Paul, in his speech in Athens, choose the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God when he was talking to the Athenian idolaters and philosophers? Why did he pick that attribute? And this morning, we can stop here and we can say, okay, James, you're talking about the comprehensive goodness of God, so why, James, would you choose right here to talk about the immutability of God? Why would God's unchangingness be so important to James for us to understand God's goodness? It's a weird kind of statement, isn't it, when you stop to think about it? He, James is trying to choose this attribute that will explain why and how God is good and why it's so important that God is good to us and his goodness, and he picks immutability, not capable of changing. You can, you can see the, the language there in immutability. If something can mutate, then it can change, but if it is immutable, then it cannot mutate. That's immutability, the unchangingness of God. So in God, James says, there is no variation of shadow due to change. And, it, and, it, and that's really important for us to know about his goodness, that God is immutably good. God is not capable of changing his goodness. The immutability of God speaks to the inherent perfection of all of God's attributes in this way. Everything that God is stays exactly as it is because God could not change. If God could change it, then it would imply that God could improve. If somehow God's actions towards us could be different, then it would imply that there's some good that he's holding back, or that God could get better and be a better giver, and God cannot improve. God cannot change for the worse, obviously, but God cannot change for the better because there's nothing better to become. God is perfectly good, perfectly glorious, righteous, loving, just, merciful, joyful, happy, satisfied, gracious, knowledgeable, present, powerful, generous, compassionate, truthful, wise, upright. You name it, God is perfectly and unchanging all of those things. He can never be better in any of them because he's the best. He's perfect in every possible way and thus... He's incapable of changing who he is towards himself or towards us. And James says, that is great news to the goodness of God. That is great news for us that God does not vary and there's no shadow of change in him. Because God is being. He's not becoming anything. When Moses asked God who he should tell the nation sent him, God says in Exodus 3, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you. God simply is. God never was something. He's not becoming something. He just is. Psalm 102, 25 says, You laid the foundation of the earth, and you made the heavens with your hands, and they will perish, but you remain forever. In Numbers, we read that God is not man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? James says this characteristic of God, that he is unchanging, unwavering, relentless in his being, is important to our goodness, to how his goodness flows towards us. It means very practically that the immutable goodness of God means that his gifts never changes in their goodness. The immutability of God means that the knowledge he requires to care for us properly 
is exactly in this moment always at his disposal. He knows exactly what we need when we need it, even if we don't think it's what we want. It means the power required to give us what we need is never absent from him. It means his desire for our flourishing and maturity never wavers. His availability to us is never removed. All of these things are true and constant forever for those who follow him. Unlike earthly father gift givers who do not always know what we need and do not always have the power or ability to give us what we need, even if they did know it, earthly fathers don't always desire our good, at least not always and not always at first. Sometimes earthly fathers desire their own good. Sometimes they're distracted by their own things that are going on. Earthly fathers don't always have the power to give us the good things that we have. Earthly fathers are not always available or approachable to us. Isaac's on his own now, but for a fact, I know that he used to plot sometimes, even in collusion with his mother, when it was the right time to approach me with his requests. He would try to figure out and, and, and sort of read the signs of when is a good time to ask dad for what he wants. He wanted to gauge my mood and my approachability and my generosity in order to maximize his chances with his earthly father. But that is not so with his heavenly father. The immutability of God, James wants us to know, is important to our understanding his goodness because we don't have to read the signs to know when it's safe or when it's the best time to approach God or what we have to do, or how we have to act to appease him, or what we might accomplish in order to get his attention or get the answer that we want. Because God is immutable, he is always there, omnipresent. He is always able, omnipotent. He always knows what is perfect for us, omniscient. God's desire for our good never wavers. You can't make God love you any less, and you can't make God love you any more. There is no variation in God. And James says it very interesting way. He says there is no shadow of change. You see, because to James, anything changeable in the nature of God would be a shadow. It would be a darkness. It would be a diminishing of God if he was to change. When God is your father, it is a source of security because God is immutably good. We need never fear that he is up to some trick or some scheme or some prank or that God is acting on some whimsical or trivial purpose to do anything for us other than good. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. To just imagine all of those times when we are forgetting God, when we are distracted by the things of this world, when we are doing our own things, not even just forgetting God, but we're rejecting God, when we are shaking our fist at him, or we're questioning him, or we're struggling, or we're just, or we're just completely ignoring him because, you know, life is just good for us right now. All of those times, from the day you were born until now, God has been relentlessly for your good. Amen. Nonstop, unwavering, constantly, God at work for your good. Whether you're thinking of him or not, whether you're shaking your fist at him or not, you can be swearing at God. He is for your good. If you are a child of God, he is relentlessly working for your maturity and perfection. So when God is your father, his immutability is a source of security. He's never going to do anything other than good for you. Now at the same time, 
If God isn't your father this morning or tomorrow or the rest of your life, then his immutability becomes a warning. It becomes something to fear. Because this is also true of the unchanging nature of God. He will not relent in his judgment of your sin. He will not relent in the justice that he will bring for his glory and for his children. He will not change his mind when you approach the throne apart from Jesus and and simply somehow, just for you, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, ah, shucks, you're a good guy, you can get in. God does not change the rules. He doesn't change the pattern of his nature. He doesn't change his stance towards sin. God's immutability and his unchanging stalwartness and steadfastness in the face of wrongdoing and evil and sin is a terrible reality and a warning to anyone who is not his child by the atoning work of Jesus. God is both the rock and the hard place that you are caught between. He is the whirlwind that you will reap, and he will not change. Your only hope and rescue is that God has given you the ability to change. Not that he will change. You can change through confession that he is God. You can change through the atoning work that Jesus has done on the cross by his death and resurrection. You can be transformed into a new creation and adopted into his family, as James is about to tell us. And you can call on God your Father, and his immutability will suddenly become security for you rather than terror for you. His immutability will become absolute goodness and confidence and hope rather than judgment and wrath. I never had to fear my dad if he showed up in the schoolyard. The other kids and maybe some teachers had to fear when he arrived, depending on what they'd done to me and whether they'd acted justly or not. But I never had to fear because my father was always for me and not against me. God is comprehensively good. God is immutably good. And James says that that immutable inability to change is incredibly comforting for us. God's immutability is for our welfare. God is faithful to his promises and to his people. He cannot deny himself. He cannot cease to be who he is. And we are his children. And why is that good for us? As I just said, you can make God your father. And his immutability can be good for you as his child. Because he is eternally good. Look what James says here at the end of this sentence. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is eternally good. What James is talking about here, how does this speak to the eternality of God's goodness towards his children? The way James has structured the sentence, this verse actually speaks from eternity past through the present and into eternity future. First of all, we see eternity past. James says that God brought us forth, or more specifically, God caused us to be born. James uses the word apokeo here, the bringing into being from pregnancy. So God hasn't brought us forth like a magician producing a card or a rabbit from a hat. Um, He hasn't brought us forth like bringing a student up on stage to give them a diploma. God has brought us forth literally by birth into new life. The unchanging God transforms us. We change. He doesn't change. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And of course, we probably remember most famously, Jesus also explained this to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So this is the unchanging God, gives us the opportunity to change. He does it. We have been brought forth. We have been born again. And James is speaking here about the past. This is God in the past. That in the past, if you're able to call God your Father and have been born of the Spirit and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and new spiritual life, then that took place in your past this morning. It's a transformation that must take place, and James is clear that it has to take place. And James goes further to say it happened, God caused it in the past, and God brought us forth. He says he's caused us to be born again, and all of that regeneration and salvation and justification and sanctification, all that stuff that takes place when we become children of God at that point in time in our past is all good, and it comes from God's effort and will. The analogy of new birth is apt because I don't know any children who caused themselves to be born or even requested to be born. And James says, God caused us in the past to be born again. He brought us forth. You say, okay, Paul, I get the metaphor, but what does that have to do with eternity past? Well, when we first come to believe there's a God and that we are sinners and Jesus is the answer to our problem as sinners, it seems like we are doing a lot of it. It seems like we're doing a lot of things to become Christian. We are seeking. We are asking questions. We are going to church. We are believing. We are repenting. We are accepting Jesus. We are walking in a new life. But as you get more mature as a Christian, you look back into the past and you realize that our choice of God was predated by his choice of us. You can look around this room here and you can talk to any Christian who's been walking with the Lord for more than just a few years, and they will tell you as they look back that really God was pursuing them, that God was arranging things in their life, people to talk to, things that happened, you know, reading certain verses, certain friends talking to them, and they realize God has actually ordered everything for me to come to this place where I know him. And for some reason, the idea that God has chosen us alarms people, as, as though they're surprised that our Heavenly Father decided before we did that we would be born again. I mean, we're not surprised that our parents made the decision that we were born, but some people get confused and upset that God chose that we would be born. I mean, it doesn't upset me that it was my mom and dad that made the decision I would be born. I didn't have a choice in that. They did that. And in the same way, our spiritual father decides that we will be born. And so eternity past here, what what James is talking about, when he says that he brought us forth by the word of truth, the bringing forth in the past is God's doing, and it was before we even sought him. And so we should see that God is eternally good because God's choice that we would be born into his family was a choice made in eternity past. Ephesians is probably the most clear in describing this. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see the connection? James says, you, God caused you to be brought forth as a kind of forced fruits, to be born again. 
And when did that happen? That happened in eternity past. Before the universe existed, before time and space were a thing, before this planet revolved around this sun, we were in the mind of God in eternity past. And he chose to bring us forth as his children today. He is good to us from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. But, but it goes beyond that. God is good to us into eternity future. James goes on to say that the result of this new birth is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that's kind of funny language, first fruits. We don't say first fruits a lot anymore. At least I don't say it unless I'm reading the Bible. And first fruits means that we've started in our new spiritual birth in the beginning to become a kind of something. We're not it yet. We've become a kind of a thing, a kind of a first fruits. We are not yet what we will be, but we will become what Jesus has already gone ahead of us as the first fruit to be. A new creation, a new eternal body, a resurrection body that does not wear out and goes on for eternity in the presence of God in heaven and is never destroyed. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10 and in 42-44, to he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, there it is again, of those who have fallen asleep or since died. And so it is... With the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And so James paints a picture for us here. He says God is completely good, he's comprehensively good, he's immutably good, his goodness never changes. And then he says, in eternity past, God had our, the goodness towards us in his mind before the earth was even created, and he caused us to be born and to be adopted into his family. And so he is good for us in eternity past. And then James says, we are the first fruits of what is coming in eternity future, and God is going to continue to be good to us into eternity future. So there is no end of God's goodness. You can't go back to a time and say, well, there was a time when God wasn't good to me. No, there wasn't a time before God wasn't good to you. God was good to you before the universe existed. There's not some time in the future where God is going to stop being good to you. God is going to continue to shower his goodness upon you and his glory with you into eternity future. So James says, everything good comes from God. God never changes in his goodness. And from eternity past to eternity future, God will be constantly good to you. It just, I don't know how you can say it any better. I mean, it's good. It's good. From past to future, unchanging, comprehensively, infinitely, always, pervasively, relentlessly, good. Amen. In two sentences, James says that this is our God. And it is so important to understanding how God is good that we understand that he is eternal, and he is immutable, and he is infinite. Now, those three things may raise a lot of questions. I expect they will raise a lot of questions in your groups this week, and really good questions. And you should meditate on the questions that these three realities bring up. But the most important question that you can have, especially for anyone who maybe never knew that this is who God was before today, if this is the first time that you've understood that this is the kind of God that that those weird Christians worship, 
If he's never been explained to you or shown to you to be what you have seen him to be today by the Holy Spirit and by his word, then the most important question that that these things can raise is, how do I receive this perfect, complete, unchanging, eternal goodness of God in my life? How do I get it? How can I know that God is my father and that he means only good for me? Well, James tells us that too. (laughs) He packs a lot in these two sentences. James says in these sentences, he says, when we became first fruits, he says, we became first fruits by the word of truth. Verse 18. The word of truth is the word of God. The word we are given is the whole counsel of Scripture, and the word of God is the gospel, and the word of God is the person of Jesus Christ. So James gives you the answer. How do you become born again? How do you become these first fruits? It's by the word of truth. It's by the word of God. It's by the person of Jesus. It's by the good news, the gospel of what he has done. It's the good news that Jesus is the eternal and perfect Son of God, that that Jesus came down from heaven as Messiah, the anointed one, to live a perfect life as a human, that a human could never live. He became the unblemished lamb that must be sacrificed, and he came and willingly to die that sacrificial death, to carry all of the weight of God's righteous wrath, that immutable wrath and hatred towards sin. Jesus bore that wrath and carried all of the fear that we should have of God away, to bear the shame that we should feel away so that we can stand before God counted as perfect. Even though we're not perfect, we are counted with Jesus' perfection. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes on all our sin, and that is glorious enough. If Jesus just took our sin, if we could stand in the courtroom of God and God could say not guilty, that would be amazing on its own. But you know, it doesn't end there. you got to get the other side of it. Jesus takes all of our shame and our sin so that we can be declared not guilty, but then we get the mantle of Jesus' righteousness. We're not just declared not guilty. We are said, you are more than not guilty. You are as righteous as the Son of God. That's the exchange. Jesus takes our guilt, our shame, and we get his righteousness so that we can stand with confidence in the throne room of God. And we can't do anything to earn this. It is a gift. It is the perfect good gift of God. God says you can never pay this back. So just take it from me. You have nothing that I could possibly require of you to pay for it. You can't possibly measure up to it. So I will give it. Trust. Have faith. Put your hope that Jesus is who he says he is. Trust that what he has done is all that needs to be done. And if you need proof that what Jesus has done is all that needs to be done for me to be satisfied, I raised him from the dead on the third day to show you that. I raised him from the dead for your justification so that you would know that my promise holds. And so the most important question, if if you're just sort of recognizing God as all of this eternal, infinite, immutable good of how you receive this gift, James says it's by the word of truth. Everything I just said is the word of truth. It is true that God is God and who he is. It is true that Jesus is his son. It's true that he came and he lived as a man in first century Palestine. It is true that he went to the cross and God accepted his death as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the world. And we just receive it as a gift. And we put our hope in that. Because if you put your hope that you're going to work really hard and be a good person, you're not going to measure up. If your hope is that, you know, your parents did a good job and that, you know, they believed and so therefore you'll somehow get, you know, grandfathered in under them, 
It won't. Everyone here who's a believer who has any hope at all, it has it, they have it rooted firmly on this one fact. Christ died for them. Christ died for me. That's the only hope I have. When I get to the pearly gates of heaven, I'm not going to say, you know what, you know, Paul, why should I let you in? I'm not going to say, well, you know what, I heard the good news and I read the Bible and I was smart enough to accept it. You know, my neighbor was kind of dumb. He didn't accept it. But I was smart. I did. So you should let me in. Can't even say that. I'm going to say, I was as dumb as everybody else. But for some reason, you chose me. And because you chose me, you gave me the faith and the hope to trust in your son. And so why am I here? Just because Jesus, that's all. No other reason. The Father of lights has made a way for this special kind of light to shine in our hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has himself shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or as we said before, the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus, Tozer would say, the knowledge of the holy. That's the gift that God shines in our hearts. So let's be a church that responds in worship to a God whose goodness is infinite and immutable and eternal. Let's be a church, let's be a people who wear this on our sleeve, who are filled with joy to overflowing to tell our friends and our neighbors that this is who God is. He's not whatever Hollywood says. He's not whatever the skeptics writing the book says. He's not what the newscast says. He's not what your friends at school say. He's not that. God is this. He is the word of truth. He's immutably, infinitely, eternally good. He is different than every earthly idol you could possibly put your hope in. He is set apart from and superior to every other pretend God or philosophy in our life. He's worthy of our worship and our praise because his goodness towards us is a safe resting place for our eternal souls. Let's pray. Father God, It is good to just meditate on your attributes as far as we can comprehend them. It's like, I don't know, it's like a swim in the ocean. You kind of set out from the shore and you're swimming in that warm surf and the water is clear and it holds you up and you feel like you could swim forever and you're swimming out into the ocean and you just think, I could swim and swim and swim in the goodness of this ocean, and that's you, Lord. We set out from the shore and we start swimming, and we just ask for your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to keep swimming and swimming and swimming in the ocean of your goodness. And Father God, I just pray again for that everyday miracle that if there's anyone here today, anyone in the sound of my voice that has not understood you as you truly are, that by your Holy Spirit, you will open the eyes of their heart and they will see and the light will shine and they will say, wow, this is not the God I'd heard about the rest of my life. But I get it. This is who God is. This is the God I need. And it's the God that you are. And so, Father, I just pray that even right now in their hearts, they would say, God, I surrender. I give up. I, I forsake all those other idols. I forsake all those other hopes. I forsake all those other things I stupidly put my trust in because they are not trustworthy. I'm putting my hope in you because you've proven your love to me on the cross by your son. 
Father, if anybody's done that today, I just pray that they would contact some Christian, some family member, somebody they know, contact me, and just say, hey, I'm, I'm taking the first step of an eternal life. What does the rest of it look like? Father, we'll help them through that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.